All right, welcome to Inspiring Futures. Um, my latest episode um, is, uh, my guest on my latest episode is George Pratt. Uh, George, welcome. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Um, you are in England, but what part of England are you in? I'm uh, sitting in Winchester, so very, very old cathedral city, about 70 miles southwest of London, down towards the south coast. How long has uh, Winchester been your home? Only a year, actually. Only a year. So I, I, I was born and bred in London, lived in London until I had too many children, uh, moved out of London into the countryside, and now I'm back in Winchester, which feels like a sort of halfway house back to the to the big smoke again. Um, what are you, how, how old are your children? Uh, 21, 19, 17, and 15. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Um, do you want to take us through a little bit of your career trajectory in terms of how you started in the business and yeah, right now? Yeah, I can. And it's quite poignant, actually, because um, I went to Edinburgh University and I read English literature and I loved words and writing um, and, you know, part of me secretly wanted to go off and write novels and do things, but then I realized I didn't really have the, the guts to do that. And I found out about a job where you could do little bits of writing and earn money and have quite a lot of fun at the same time, which was back in the day copywriting. Um, and so what I did was after university, I, I went to Watford College, um, which was then the sort of the most guaranteed way into a job as a copywriter or an art director. And it was run by this wonderful man called Tony Cullingham. The reason it's poignant is that in the last week he has passed away. And in fact, last night I was at the pub at a gathering of quite a lot of his sort of ex-students who are dotted around all of the top creative departments in London and, and across the world. So anyway, I went to Watford College. I teamed up with a art director, a lovely guy called Johnny Leathers, who is still a very good friend of mine and godfather to one of the one of the kids. Um, and we put a portfolio together and sent it off to the top 10 agencies in London. And it just so happened that it caught the eye of the executive creative director at BBH, Bartle Bogle Hegarty. And we landed a placement there. That was back in the days when basically agencies would, would sweat you for no salary whatsoever. And it was a privilege to be there. And, and I think we did about three or four months before they offered us a job. I spent five very happy years at, at BBH, um, was then hired with Johnny to go to Lowe, which was sort of a once great agency that Ed Morris, who was the executive creative director, was was sort of turning around and, and making really good again. Johnny and I went there for five years. Then I got hired by a small agency called Delaney Lund Knox Warren, DLKW, to be their executive creative director. Uh, I, I was about... 31 or something, so quite young, and I had a couple of years there when suddenly it was announced that Lowe was buying DLKW, so I found myself going back into the agency I'd left um, and running that, and one of my first jobs was having to fire lots of people who I liked who were friends of mine, uh, because that's what happens when you slam two agencies together. Um, I lasted there for about another year um, before coming to the late realisation that digital was going to change everything and sort of transitioned across to RGA, which was at the time, you know, the top digital agency in the world. But their London office was very small, about 25 people. So I became joint ECD there. 
and spent five or six years, invaluable years, building that office up to about 300 people, winning agency of the year three times, um, and learning, frankly, about products and services and human-centered thinking and design thinking and all of the things that kind of sit at the heart of what I believe now. That was great. Uh, and then the, the last installment, um, I mean, you probably didn't expect me to go on for quite so long, um, but the last installment is, uh, while I was at RGA, I, I met a, an amazing strategist called Drew Burden. We were scheming to set up a consultancy together that sort of looked at brand design in the same way that we sort of looked at products and service design, so sort of from a human-centric value, value exchange kind of point of view, what do people want, how can we meet their needs kind of thing. And just as we were going to leave RGA, we met a guy called David Jones who was setting up this much bigger thing, which was called you and Mr. Jones back then. And he said, look, you're talking about brands and technology. I'm building a thing around brands and technology. Why don't you join me as partners and set up your consultancy in the middle of my group? And that was, frankly, an amazing offer because, you know, between us, we had seven children. We didn't really want to be right on the breadline again. And, and actually what he was offering us was, was be, to be partners of a much bigger thing and a much safer thing. So did six or seven years there um, and, and left, became the brand tech group, left that at the end of March. And I'm now sort of, I'm doing part-time work as a, as a sort of self-employed consultant and I'm, and I'm moving into the political world, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Fantastic. Um... Thank you for taking us through that. A uh, couple of questions, because um, there's some sort of there's, there's a number of like catalytic moments. The first is deciding you love English and but you don't you don't have it what it takes to be a novelist, and you're going to do advertising. What where, where did that come from? Where did where did the the awareness of the industry and the opportunity? How did, that, how did that come to you? That's a good question. I, um, in my last year at university, I, I, you know, I've been running a nightclub in Edinburgh and taking life not very seriously. I think I had a bit of a, um, a realization that I probably was going to have to get a proper job at the end of reading a few novels and writing essays about them while having as much fun as possible. And so I organized to go and do some work experience in three different places. Actually, funnily enough, the other thing that I thought I wanted to do was be a barrister. So I went into a barrister's chambers, which, you know, when you come to think about it, is all about words and narrative with a bit of performance and a bit of, you know, strategic rigor chucked in as well. I went to a barrister's chambers um, and, and shadowed a, a barrister who was, who was um, defending a man who jumped on his brother's head sort of 57 times in a Welsh pub. And I saw all the photos of that and stuff, and it wasn't very nice. But it was fascinating. I went into a venture capital firm, which I just did not understand. I mean, I, you know, put me in front of a spreadsheet still, and I'm, I'm pretty mystified by it. Um, and then um, I managed to get two weeks' work experience in MNC Saatchi in the information department. Uh, agencies don't even have information departments anymore. But this was before the internet, when if a, if a director of the business needed information, there would be all these books on a shelf, and people like me would scurry around putting together packets of information. And we used to go through all the newspapers first thing in the morning before anyone got in, getting all the clippings out of every national newspaper about any of the clients and delivering it to Morris Saatchi's desk. Anyway, while I was at MNC in the information department, I, I, I saw this group of people who sort of rocked into work at about 10.30 in the morning, 
sat down, scribbled some stuff down, chucked a rugby ball around, went to the pub at lunchtime and occasionally disappeared to South Africa on sunny shoots or South America or whatever it was, all in the name of creativity. Um, and that looked like really good fun to me and, and didn't really seem like work, but seemed to be a combination of kind of creativity, writing, solving problems um, and not taking life too seriously as well, which, which, which appealed to me at that moment in time. So when I saw that job, I said, how do you get this job? And then someone said, you've got to go to Watford. So then I you know, applied to the Watford course and that was it. So interesting because I was doing the same thing at McCann Erickson in their information department and discovered planning in a similar way that you discovered the creative department. And so that's how I made my journey. Well, there's value, isn't there? There's, there's value in being in testing things out before you jump into something. There's value in exposing yourself to things that take you to somewhere where you're not really expecting them to. You know, it's 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 a. I think that sort of restless curiosity is something that has stayed with me all the way through my life, actually. Then, um, you know, having spent a while at a, at a traditional creative agency, um, recognizing the sort of, I always saw the two worlds of digital and traditional. I always saw them as two camps, but still, still really do. And um, it takes some enlightened thinking if you've been in one side to recognize the potential in the other. So you, so you, so you, You'd see, you'd seen something. What it, what it, what it made you recognise that you needed that digital experience? Uh, well, I saw the ham-fisted way that traditional agencies were doing digital. You know, they were hiring a digital creative director, and he was chucked the arse end of a campaign after everything else had been sort of crafted to within an inch of his life, and said, "Right, you've got five grand." make a viral video or something like that, or, you know, do whatever. Um, and that seemed to me to be absolutely the wrong way of doing things, which, you know, we can talk about it later, but I think probably persists quite, quite heavily to this day. Um, the epiphany for me was actually a trip to South by Southwest in Austin um, a very long time ago. I mean, I, I think it was the year that um, the first time I went, I think was the year that Twitter was launched. I saw the launch of Twitter and I saw the launch of Instagram at, um, at South by, and I just felt an energy around technology and how it was improving people's lives and the, and the value that technology was able to, this was back before, you know, social media ruined everything and, you know, notions of creating value rather than just extracting value, um, still held some weight. Um, so I went to South by Southwest and I just, I just went to all these mind blowing talks and I talked to interesting people, some of whom are from the UK who seem to be from really interesting, you know, have really interesting points of view. And I guess came to the realization that I needed to get across this stuff. Um, but also I think, you know, the restless mind thing again was, was, was the challenge of learning something new, the challenge of going somewhere that I didn't quite understand. So it just so happened that a friend of mine was the MD of RGA in London, and we've been chatting, and, and he wanted someone to come in and sort of be from a more storytelling background. RGA in those days used to go systematic thinking on one side, 
storytelling on the other and the, and the magic was where those two things came together i think it's actually a bit deeper than that but in those days it made a lot of sense um and so i went in as the sort of storytelling guy and then got everyone a bit confused because all i really wanted to do was learn about the systematic stuff and 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 got really into strategy as well that was the other thing was to design a useful product or service you have to really understand people and what they need. You have to boil it down to something incredibly simple. And then you need to wrap a, a narrative and a story around it, or, or even sort of bake a narrative into the experience or, or create a narrative arc for, for, for a product or a service, which I think people are still doing to this day. So um, yeah, again, it was a sort of expose myself to something that I didn't quite understand and and sort of dig out the, you know, the things of value from it. So, Fast forward just for a second to today. We still got. How do you see the landscape of of the world of marketing communications right now? When you look at it and 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 you see things like influencers, you think of something like TikTok, um, and, and you see the attention that's being placed by brands in those places. How does that make you, what does that make you think? I, I'm just saying that because years ago, I worked on an online travel agency called Priceline. Mm -hmm. I spent literally billions of dollars with Google. So we could get pretty much whatever we wanted. Most interesting is that it's very hard to get anything out of these big media companies um unless you spend a lot of money so we took a team to, to i think it was youtube and they said you should have a look at what our best uh highest viewing video is and it was two girls in a bedroom um looking at the shopping that they just purchased on a saturday yeah i had 33 million views and the creators walked out of the room i think that everybody who works in marketing should remain endlessly humble and realize that what they do is the sort of pimple on the end of the nose of of the massive cow that is people's lives like it's what the social media companies did is they they created things that that fitted into people's lives um and 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 kind of endlessly iterated and sweated and tried new things and did little things i I think that, um, you know, this goes back to an attitude to technology, I think, which is you've got to just think of technology as a means of connecting people to ideas or providing value to people. And really, you've got to extrapolate from what your product does to make that meaningful and authentic. And, you know, we we still seem to be in a, in a sort of broadcast heavy mode at the at the mercy of the big media platforms. And it, you know, it feels like a bit of a race to the bottom, if I'm honest with you. It's not, it's, it's, and I'm going to speak from my own, because it's important for me to, to separate my own sort of point of view at the end of 20 plus years, um, rather than what I know. It's still a vibrant, thriving business, but it's, it is one that's on its uppers at the moment. I think, I think, you know, it's, it's tough times. They are, the platforms hold all the power at the moment, although there's an interesting sort of move to a more private social um, but actually, you know, God, the, the brand's right to be in private social has got to be even more thought through than it's right to be in social media. Um, 
I see a pretty murky world. I see a pretty murky world. And the rise of AI, I think, um, you know, again, classically, we're, we're thinking about it as a shiny new thing. For me, it's not really architecture, it's plumbing. Like AI is, is a money-saving thing. It's going to make us even more efficient and even more and faster and better. But it's not like a thing to, to tell people that you're using. It's, 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 a, it's a tool. It's a means to an end. Um, so it's interesting, you know, it's interesting. I think it's just going to, it's going to get faster and it's going to get cheaper and the role of creativity is going to get scarcer, but more valuable in, in a few instances where brands are, are powerful and creating value and useful and probably quite good for the world as well at the same time. Yeah. Just to, just to share a thought, I was in Times Square yesterday and I noticed a billboard advertising an app where you could actually buy your own time on a billboard through this app. <laughs> so basic. So that sort of the Marshall McLuhan or, Joe, yeah. or whatever you want to call sci-fi. Ultimately, everyone has their five minutes the same, and you can actually buy your own billboard, which was ten years ago totally inaccessible to only to everyone and only available to only those with the biggest advertising budgets in the world. Well, I, I, I can see a world where individual people manage their own relationship with media on the blockchain. And there's a series of micro contracts between individual bits of content and people and those people's media influence where actually, you know, everything becomes atomized and everything becomes recorded on a ledger. And, you know, that basically, the platforms get disintermediated. You know, we, we had a sort of blockchain rush, which got really soiled by the NFT nonsense. But, the, you know, the, the concept of tokens, I think, is still really interesting. And, and, and blockchain will transform at some point. It might still be 10 years away, but, but there will be a level of transparency down the pipe that will make all of what we're doing probably much more interesting. But it, it will almost become like a legal and contractual, like the plumbing will become more important than the architecture again. It's sort of like, how do you how do you engineer the relationship between brands and consumers in a way where the value exchange is much more, is much more symbiotic? And then, kind of, you know, what is the role of an agency at that point? I'm not quite sure. You know, the, I've been saying for a while the problem with agencies is that they don't have much. But um, it's it's a it's a there's a fascinating there's a fascinating world down down the track I think. When you when you go back to the RGA experience, I mean RGA created you know a real brand in in a space in a, in a new space. Um, what was what was behind that? Do you think what was behind the success, the the, the initial success of RGA as a as an entity? Making things and building things. Like it was a production shop before it was an agency. So it, it was building digital products and, and creating video content using, you know, motion graphics, et cetera, right at the infancy of those two industries. So, you know, if I let you know, if you put yourself in the mind of a client back in the digital wild west and you had you had you had a pitch. And you knew you had to create, I don't know, a, a, a utility app because you were a bank or something like that or whoever you were. And you got your ad agency into pitch. And they went, yeah, you know, jazz hands, jazz hands. It's all this. We're going to put the, you know, this is the message of the app. And then RGA would come in and go, well, we built this. We built that. We're doing this with Nike. We're doing that with Verizon or whatever it is. You know, that, there was an authenticity and a, 
and just, you know, the chops to, you know, we used to call it showing the beef. We had these amazing decks, uh, creds decks. And, and you know, God, I felt excited after looking at the creds deck for the hundredth time because it, it, it was genuinely, it felt like transformation was happening and we were driving the transformation. And so in 2023, back, back then there was a gap between what clients could do and where they were getting their help. And in 2023, that sort of resource, they got, they've caught up. Clients have caught up with this mm. idea of digital transformation and they've brought those capabilities into their own building and they can now do most of that themselves. Yeah. And that actually was, was part of what is, what is really good about the brand tech group, formerly known as you and Mr. Jones, was one of the big cornerstones of it is, is building in-house agencies for clients. And if you build in-house agencies, then if client has an in-house data function and client has an in-house media function or you know, whatever, it, whatever it happens to be, they are much happier to have their in-house agency working hand in glove with those two entities than the nightmare of you know, trying to combine three external agencies into, into, one, into one another and, and, and them trying to eat each other's lunch the whole time. So um, I think you're absolutely right. Like They've pulled it all in-house at the same time clients are on an increasingly short time span. And there's the gnarly thing of, of internal marketing, especially in the big sort of CPG firms, which is, you know, as a marketing person, you're trying to make a name for yourself in the 18 months that you're in charge of X, Y, or Z brand. Therefore, you know, you, you try and grasp the latest new thing and do something in it. So you become the metaverse guy or you become the AI guy or whatever it is. And, and again, that's not, I just don't think that's the right approach. I call it the... I call it the Violet Beauregard approach to marketing, which I, I'm going to mangle Roald Dahl here, but Violet Beauregard, when she first sees an Oompa Loompa, decides that she must have one, and she starts going, I want an Oompa Loompa, I want an Oompa And her dad's sort of going, uh, but Violet, the, the Oompa Loompas are really happy here. They don't, you know, I don't care, I want an Oompa Loompa. And I think, you know, we saw that quite a lot with the metaverse in particular a couple of years ago, which was, Everyone going, oh, the metaverse, and, and reasonable people going, yeah, it doesn't quite exist yet. Uh, I don't care. I want something in the metaverse. And, and, you know, we would design these strategies, which were like, okay, well, let's think about what the metaverse might be and how it might change the context. And then let's play around with that context in social or gaming where we are right now, just in case the metaverse becomes a thing. And they're like, I don't want to do that. I want to get straight, jump straight to phase three or whatever it was. And it's like, no, but we can't. It doesn't. Anyway, so I, I actually think... The transformations in marketing will be in the plumbing, as I say, will be in the mechanics of how we make content or how we use artificial intelligence and in the weird contractual legal sort of new wave media relationships that are going to happen between maybe between, you know, maybe between groups and content to start off with. But then I guess if it becomes efficient enough between individuals and, and bits of content as well. I wonder what, what I wonder what your take is on. Um, I mean, we sort of grew up. My very first um, interaction with anyone in advertising, meaningful, was a meeting I had or an interview I had with John Ritchie. Yeah. And uh, you know, you think of CDP, um, and, and and you think of the sort of the golden age of uh, of 
of storytelling. Um, I wonder if the industry, I mean, I keep speculating that the industry has missed the trick on being able to sell creativity as, as an X factor. And in terms of like as a concept, you need client CPG brand. You need, if you don't have creativity, you are missing an X factor. And without that, you get to commoditization. You get to just filling channels with crap that an AI can probably create. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just, I just, I think we've been very good at awarding ourselves for great work, but I don't think it's done a great job with telling the rest of the corporate world why they need creativity and what exactly it is. I have two reactions to that. I, my first one is like since almost leaving the industry and switching off Instagram and switching off Twitter for, for, for sort of ideological reasons and, and for just watching the TV that I want to watch and not following the advertising websites and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I consume almost zero advertising and marketing. Now that I'm 48 years old, I'm not scrolling through TikTok the whole time. I'm not on, I'm not on Instagram, you know, doom scrolling, but it's very easy to overestimate how much interaction people have with what we do as a business, I think. And then my other reaction is that, you know, if we're honest, probably 85% of what our industry produces is not particularly creative. It's mostly quite crap. Like there's brilliant stuff. And I think in that golden age, you know, when we both started out, there were three channels. Well, there were three TV channels, but there were also, you know, it was print, it was TV and it was radio. And so it was a much more concentrated world. Your stuff was actually seen because people were watching real TV, you know, down, down the, down the TV set. And they were probably, they might have made a cup of tea while the adverts came on, but they sort of still had them on. And, and if you had the right track and you, you know, and you did something that grasped their attention, they'd remember it and see it. I think creativity is as valuable as it has ever been. But the affordances, you know, the context that, that marketing creativity finds itself in now just make, you know, make it scarce as hen's teeth. And I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's going to change. Like AI, AI is not going to improve that. You know, it's going to make us do more stuff faster. It's not going to make it more creative. I, 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 I do think, you know, there will be a 5% set of agencies, um, you know, like the one that my friend Nils runs, that will do really well off really amazing creativity and ideas. But the rest of it is, as I said, it's a bit of a race to the bottom. You know, the holding companies are, are changing their shape and they're, and they're beefing up on their media and their data and, their, and the efficiency of their production, and they're doing all the things they should be doing. You know, all the things that we kind of set up you and Mr. Jones to do as well, which is the data media content working in harmony, probably with an intelligent piece of technology in the middle of it that, you know, starts to capture information and, and, and put stuff up on a ledger of some sort. It, but it's, it's a, uh, I don't know. It was very interesting for me not going to Cannes this year and watching it from the outside. And I'd, I'd spoken to lots of friends in the in the industry who were just like, oh, it's a bit tough at the moment. That's, you know, it's not. Uh, but if you if you if you just saw people's like updates on LinkedIn who are at Cannes, you'd think that everything was absolutely amazing. You know, here's me with another famous marketing person. Here's me with another famous marketing person. And 
And I know it's super tough. Look at what's happening to S4. You know, that, that wasn't a bad model. I think they, they obviously acquired things much too fast and slammed them together and didn't always tell the truth about things. But, like, it kind of should have worked. And even and, and that model's not working. And WPP's really happy because its growth is flatlining at 4% again. Or so, you know, it's, it's, this is not, this is a, this is, it's either an industry ripe for transformation in a really interesting way. And I, and, you know, God, I hope that happens. Or it is kind of, it's noodling away and creativity's fizzling out a bit and, and it will, creativity will become a niche part of what the industry does, I think. Do you think we're looking at, I mean, I look at something, I know it's very dated, but something like innocent, innocent, movies yeah by sort of creativity sort of was across the organization it wasn't an ad it was the way they answered the phone and the way the brand behaved and it was you know there was there was personality yeah and there was attitude and it helped those guys build a brand and now we sort of i was talking to one of i did a podcast with um one of the founders of code and theory that big digital shop over here. Uh, you know, everything's become A/B tested, and it's sort of bland. Everything, everything digital looks the same. Yeah. And the personality things that are taken away, and it seems again, it's not about your sixty. You know, it's not about your sixty-second TV spot. It's about injecting personality. Yeah. Um, technology. What... Technology is a very. Um, I worked on Mini, the Mini business for a long time, and they got enamored at BMW with this whole idea of the tech in the car. And, you know, they just bought it from, like, software people, and they didn't develop it themselves, and it just became the same as everyone else's tech. Yeah. Where's the brand? Yeah. This is, that I think... a bunch of work to be done in that area. This is what I learned from spending some time at the coalface of sort of digital products and services was thinking about behavior but as almost more important than messaging because, because you know, speaking is just one part of how you behave. And, you know, if, you, if you're trying to build a relationship with someone, and I know people go, I don't want a relationship with a packet of sausages. But you kind of do want a relationship with an app that is helping you lose weight or, or an app that is measuring your exercise or whatever it is. Like, so that, that got me thinking about brands very differently and, and really understanding that everything is brand. Like to your point about innocent, like it's the stuff that's written on the bottles. It's how you answer the telephone. It's how you talk to the press. It's what your headquarters looks like. It's the festival that you put on. It's the stories that you tell about, you know, put a bottle in this bucket or that bucket and, you know, their sort of founding story. And I think, I think a lot of the tension actually between brands and the media digital landscape now is that a lot of them have their genesis is not in that kind of relationship. You know, their genesis is in a sort of innovation pipeline where they're just doing incremental little changes in their formula or whatever it is that they sell, and then they're developing advertising campaigns, and they're trying to make people remember at the point of purchase what it is about this particular variant. It's going to drive incremental growth, and blah, but it's very top down. And those, I think, brands like Innocent, and there are lots, you know, there are lots of them. The reason they succeed is because it's it's there from the beginning. It's part of their DNA, and they pick a north star or whatever you want to call it that is easily embodiable everywhere. You know, they, you can be the sort of quirky, friendly, 
bottle. You can be the quirky, friendly CEO. You can be the quirky, friendly advert on TV. You can be the festival with, you know, all the bunting or whatever it is. There's a Patagonia does the same thing. Nike does the same thing. Although, yeah, let's not talk about Nike actually at the moment. But it's it's yeah, it's it's that approach. And I think that's where the tension quite often comes with with people who get digital trying to talk to clients about how they could behave or be in that world. And it, and it just never quite gets authentic and it never quite gets sincere because it's not baked into where they came from and, and how they got set up. Yeah, I mean, what I notice is, you know, again, and you know, just, just an example, I worked on Converse for a while. That's a very rich, storied brand. But... You seem to have, it seems to be a battle between left brains and right brain, and the yeah. left brains win because it's about how many shoes. You're taking real estate, valuable real estate, telling the converse story that I could be using selling more shoes. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to win because my, the metrics are in my favor because I can prove to my bosses that this works, and you can't really prove what you do actually made a difference. Yeah. And this is where really good strategy comes into play, I think. But this this is where you have to be able to make a really cogent argument for, yes, doing the day-to-day bread and butter stuff, but taking a longer-term strategic view on your brand and its relationship with people and where that brand could go. Where's the elasticity that, you know, for Converse could get it into music or for... Mini could get it into entertainment or whatever. You know, there's there's a and and it's I, I do find, you know, I think that Fernando, who was at Burger King, is a good example of this, is there are there are people who are willing to take the short, medium, and long-term view, and they're willing to try things out, and they're willing to often get their brand down to a very, very simple articulation that allows them to do really interesting things and make some noise about it and and be successful. Um you know, I've done a lot of work with the big matrix CPG organizations and, and often it just felt like pushing a big stone up a hill that probably was going to roll back down and run you over and smash at the bottom of the hill, <laughs> leaving you in its wake. It's, it's, uh, um, it's very hard. It's very hard to, to seek while others zag, funnily enough, going back to the old BBH motto, it's very hard to behave as a custodian of a brand in a way that, you're either going to blow up in flames or you're going to do absolutely brilliantly because, you know, everyone reverts to the norm. And, and, and as I said, it's a matrixed organization. I, I, I've had so many good clients. I've, I've really, really enjoyed working with lots of them. But it's a world that I would find, I personally would find it incredibly hard to to operate in because it is, it, they not, you get the edges knocked off very, very fast. A friend of mine had a lovely expression, um, wind tunnel marketing. You know, just anything interesting just gets knocked off by the wind tunnel until all you're left with is just like a plain cylinder of some sort, probably a cone, actually. No one's going to get fired. Everyone's going to get their bonus, and, you know, the, 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 train, the train gets there on time eventually. Yeah. But I, think I don't blame the people. I just want to say, because I, I don't blame the people. It's the, it's the system. Yeah. yeah it's the system. Yeah. I mean, again, I worked on Coca-Cola for a long time, and, you know, the people are brilliant, but the culture doesn't allow that brilliance to shine to shine through. Just want to go back to AI for a second because I think it's kind of going to be pivotal. If I know you talked about plumbing and a, a tool and it may, may as well be an Excel spreadsheet, but I think what's going to happen 
is we're going to see AI sort of become that interface for a lot of brands. Um, you know, take Expedia, for example, or Uber. You're going to ask Uber and you ask Expedia questions, and the AI will come back. And if you don't have brand smart about how your AI talks to people, you'd just be like a generic AI. So surely there's a huge opportunity there to make sure these AIs, who are, who, which will become those interfaces, actually sound and feel like the brand. And maybe, I mean, I, I speculated that when you go back to some of these companies and go back to some of those matrix organizations, when they actually look at the brand documentation in their architecture, it's rather thin and it's pretty undifferentiated and it's probably not enough in what they have to do something interesting. So I, I, I wonder if there's like a, a lot of work for somebody or an agency or some entity to do in that space. Yes, is the short answer to that. Yes, of course, because you know, back to the brand as experience or brand as a set of experiences, that AI interaction uh, will be will be a will be a brand experience. Um, I don't know how far off that is because you know I've never had a decent experience with a brand chatbot up until now. No. Um, I don't know how easy it's going to become to program an AI to represent you and make sure it doesn't you know, fuck things up at some point when it decides to go off on one. Um, but I'm sure all of that is coming down the pipeline. But then, yes, you as an, as an, in your agency, you will need to have, you know, they, they call them prompters now, don't they? But you're going to need to have sort of AI wranglers uh, who are constantly, it's, I mean, it's ironic, right? You're going to need human beings to check mm -hmm. that the AI is not going off brief at any point. Um, rails around the fact, and that is the problem that we have seen with you know with the web 2.0 social media companies, which is they create an interface and an algorithm in that case, and the algorithm just goes off on one, and then they throw their hands up in the air and go, "Oh, nothing to do with me, nothing to do with me," and and that AI, what could you call it, AI security or something, mm, facing, yeah. Yeah. is going to be yeah fascinating to watch unfold. So um, let's talk politics. <laughs> okay. So what was it? What was the genesis? Uh, your again, your epiphany, your moment, your aha moment. Um, it's pretty simple, actually. It's pretty simple. I, you know, the last seven years of my life, full time advertising, marketing. I should just say, I got I got really interested in strategy actually as a creative. I think because what I realized, and we've touched on it a bit, you know, like the the pure creativity was becoming more and more in an ivory tower and sort of slightly divorced from what was going on. Mm -hmm. in, in thinking about brands and, and really simplifying things and boiling them down to an essence and all of the things that I love, you know, love doing, um, that felt almost as creative a process as, as, you know, writing a script for a TV ad or whatever it was. So, um, the last seven years of my working life, I really gravitated towards purpose. Um, and I didn't do it. Why did I do it? I, I gravitated towards purpose because it was there and because brands were showing an interest in positive social and environmental value. I gravitated towards it because I've got four kids and I could see the state of the world that we were leaving them. And I wanted to try and start making a difference. 
and I gravitated towards it. I guess again, it's back to the you know Violet Beauregard and Lumpa thing. Everyone wanted it, so there was a sort of there was a confluence of oh, brands are starting to think about making the world a better place. Hmm, they're going to pay money for people to think about it. Ah, oh, I've got four kids and we're fucking things up. And it was sort of like okay. So for seven years, I, I, I worked a lot. I would say probably 85, 90% on purpose stuff um, and had some, some real success. But eventually just, it's going to sound sort of a little bitter, and I don't mean it this way, but the limitations of purpose for, through a brand lens. Um, I worked with some amazing clients on it. And I, worked, you know, I did a project for, for a big client for a year. Uh, and I was about to interview the CEO with all the, all the findings, and I'd rewritten the company's purpose, and then they just pulled the plug, and I went, actually, no, we just want to make our shareholders as much money as we can. And I think I just got to the point where I realized that a lot of it was so performative and was being done for marketing effect rather than because you actually wanted to be a nice person um, that I realized that if I really want to leave the world better than I found it and I really want to try and make a difference to the world that our kids are all going to inherit, then I needed to get closer to where real decisions were made and where real influence was exerted and, and real conversations were had about social and environmental value or survival, if you want to put it that way. So um, I, I had never been hugely political and I don't think I am hugely political now, but, but, but the business of local politics and, and national politics is a, you know, is a means to get close to, how decisions are made. And I think also the way that my mind works, I can probably be quite useful in putting narratives around things and simplifying things and spinning things on their head and going, oh, right now we're thinking about it this way, but what if we thought about it that way? And have you da 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 Anyway, I, I was leaving my job and I was helping out in Winchester a bit with the local Liberal Democrat Party. And they said, oh, we're looking for someone to stand for the council in the middle of town, which is where I live in this particular ward, would you be up for it? And I knew I kind of had a window where I wasn't going to do as much work as I had been before. So I campaigned and I ran for the local council. Absolutely. It was just like the best thing ever having, you know, sat in a corporate world for 20 years, going out knocking on doors. You know, there's the cliche, they say every door you knock on, there's like a little film waiting to be played out behind it, but you don't know what it is until someone opens the door and just talking to people. And, you know, we make a big thing in marketing. Yeah, we're, you know, we're gaining insights and we're talking to people, but actual door, doorstepping people and kind of turning up and going, oh, hi, I'm George. I'm running for the council for the Lib Dems, you know, just moved into the city, just want to know what, what's on your mind, what's important, what should I be thinking about in the run-up to the election? And, and they just, stories, human stories just kind of come out at you. And you realise then, you know, in marketing, we're very good at people putting people in buckets and segmentations and da da da. And, and actually, humanity is an incredibly diverse, wonderful, crazy, chaotic thing. Uh, anyway, so I got elected. I'm currently on the Winchester City Council. Um, and then my family are all from the Isle of Wight. And it just so happened that the Isle of Wight's being split into two constituencies. There's always been one. It's going to be east and west. My family all live in the east. And, and the Lib Dems are looking for a candidate for the general election there. So I'm currently um, campaigning to try and get selected to run in the general election next year. But sorry, going back to your original question, why politics? Just trying to make a difference, getting getting closer to you know where the where the levers are and the, and the cogs are moving. Um, and I think why, why Liberal Democrat. Um, because as I said, I'm not a politician. I have a very strong sense of value. 
of my own personal values. I think honestly that when we when we die, our values are pretty much the thing that endures above and beyond anything. You know, it doesn't. If I if I die and and my one of my sons is giving the eulogy at my funeral and he, and he goes, here lies George. He was big in marketing. I think I'll be hammering on the roof of the coffee and kind of going, no, stop, rewind. So um, no, I think I think that uh, the Liberal Democrats are the conscience of the country. You know, while the two big parties seem to be fighting a way to resemble each other and going weirdly far right and trying to squash the far left. And like, we're a group of people, I've just been to the conference actually, we're a group of very nice people, probably all unsuited to actually being politicians, but who do really believe in in people as individuals and creating the, the conditions for everyone to thrive and, and, and welcoming incomers and being internationalists and caring for the environment and wanting things to be as fair as possible as they can be for everybody. It's also, what I really like about it is, you do not try and become a Liberal Democrat MP because you want to be Prime Minister. You know, like you become a Tory MP because you want to climb the greasy pole. You become a Liberal Democrat MP, especially at the age of 50, um, which is probably what I'll be by then, um, because you want to help people and you want to represent a community and you want to do a really good job for your constituency and you want to take the, you know, the concerns of your people to Westminster and try and get things sorted out. So that's why it's a, it's a, it's a very natural place for me to be. What uh, things, I, I think what, what's been interesting in, in how you in our discussion so far is each experience, each fundamental experience that you've had, major experience, you have a you have a learning, that you have a takeaway, you take something away. In politics, what surprised you? What's a surprised you about your recent experience? What what have you learned that you weren't expecting to? Um I have I have been amazed at how capable and compassionate local politicians are, um, and that you know I, I know there are some really badly run councils, and I know that there are problems in lots of places, and uh, and I, we won't I won't get into the sort of you know political reasons for that, but in Winchester it's a it's a really well run council by people who have done really good jobs before they've done it, who've devoted a large amount of their life to the local community and. And who are you know ex civil servants? They've either they've been in the in the world or not, or they've run businesses, or they've you know, and they've they've made the decision to transfer their skills into the public environment and do something for people. And I think that's a really noble thing to do. On a national level, I'm surprised at how timid everyone is. I, when I look at the world ahead, I see some really big problems coming down the track. And I see the tools that we've built ourselves right now not being fit for purpose for much longer. Like in terms of you know our version of capitalism, our version of democracy, our version of international relations, I don't see being fit for purpose to to solve the big problems. And I'm and I know why because you know local politics, national politics is a series of tactical battles and incremental gains. But at some point. I can't remember. There's a guy called Marshall. I wrote his name down. Marshall, Marshall, Marshall. Marshall Goldsmith wrote a book called uh, "What Got You Here Won't Get You There." Mm. And I've got, you know, I've just got this overwhelming sense of what got us here won't get us there. It won't get us to where we need to get to. So, 
I understand why the conversations are small and incremental and just trying to, you know, take pot shots at each other. But I've just got this overwhelming feeling of that we need some slightly deeper tectonic shifts. Um, and I think everyone knows that, but people who've been in politics a long time, I think, like, almost don't want to, you know, it's like, shush over there. I just need to concentrate on what's going on here. So that was it, really. I think that's really, I think that's really interesting, especially if you go back to the state of chaos program where we talked about the documentary, where it, it, it's clear to it sort of massive uh, disruptions occurred in British politics, first with Brexit. There was no playbook. There was no, if, if Brexit happened, there was no plan. No. It didn't exist. Same with COVID. There was no, there was no plan. Yeah. So, you know, you've got, you end up with, you end up with chaos because if there is no plan, and it's just kind of back to your point, which is, in a in a world of black swans or whatever word you want to use, phrase you want to use, how do you plan? And this goes back to, you know, if you if you think about Brexit and you think about COVID and you think about the nature of the people who were in charge, it's no surprise that we ended up where we did. Because they weren't serious, they weren't thoughtful, they weren't compassionate, they were playing games and they and they got caught as COVID with their trousers down. And I think that I think what's required is is seriousness, but not you know not without levity. Is mm. compassion, is humanity. I also just feel like we we're, we're not generous anymore. We don't have a spirit of generosity anymore. Like there's there's just a everyone's grabbing stuff left, right, and centre. And actually, you know, notions of the Commonwealth and bringing everyone along and leveling up is a really good phrase that has been completely screwed up. But like. An understanding that everywhere and everyone deserves to have a fair chance and get on is something that I think isn't being steered at the moment and, and needs to be. There's a lot of talk about the zero sum. The zero sum theory. If, if, if someone gains, someone else must lose. Yeah. And it's become a sort of a pervasive way of thinking. Harvard has just done a massive study on it. And particularly with the younger folks, it's, it's not worth me putting the effort in. And it's not worth, you know, it's not worth me giving a damn about other people because it's not, nothing's going to happen, you know. Yeah, that's a that is a big thing I think about a lot because I, you know, I've talked to people in our party and lended a bit of a creative, strategic hand to the wheel from time to time. And the plight of young people right now and the way that things are skewed against them is something I think about a lot. And and. I see a real opportunity for our party in particular to become the party of young people. But when I talk to people about it, they go, oh, young people don't vote, so we don't talk to them. Yeah. I'm like, oh, God. Ah! You know, that's white space right there. If only 50% of people under the age of 28 vote, that's that's a lot of people that you can go after. But you've got to start making them realise the value of engagement. Like the, At the moment, to your point, there's no point in engaging. There just is no point. But if you can show the value of engagement, if you can create the value of engagement, if you can talk to them on their own terms and help them get the things that they need, I, I, I think there's a real opportunity around youth, around the environment, which I think is going to be the dominant narrative behind everything in 10 years' time, if it isn't in five years' time. Um, and and I, I, I do, I mean, you know, Lib Dems are well known for banging on about proportional representation, but if you have a voting system that isn't fair, if you have a voting system, which as a young person you come to it for the first time and go, 
oh, it doesn't matter who I vote for here because Labour always win the seat or the Tories always win the seat. Of course, you're going to be disengaged. I mean, it suits the people in power and it suits the people who gerrymander and draw lines, but you're just going to end up with a with a retiree voting population. You know, it's quite well documented that, that people of our age and, and below, you know, we're, we're expected to veer right as we get older, but we're not showing any of the signs of doing what our parents did and what our parents' parents did. I think quite a lot of that was built up in post-war. You know, they'd seen change. I think about change a lot as well, you know, like that conservatism is built on a fear of change. Like it's built on an understanding that if you look backwards, you can see what's worked. And that's a better modus operandi than trying things and looking forwards and seeing how you can make things better. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that comes out of a post-war, you know, my granddad was a was a Polish 21-year-old who came to the UK, joined the Polish Free Force, liberated Belson, had PTSD for the rest of his life and became a lifelong conservative. In fact, he worked as a conservative party agent because he had seen change, yeah. you know, and it scared the living daylights out of him. I think we're getting to a generation now where where, you know, I think we can get excited about change again, as long as it's designed and, all, you know, all the things that, that we've sort of, that we've learned. Final, final question. To those copywriters out in Adland right now, uh, what advice would you give them? Ooh, that is a hard one. That is a hard one. I think just have a sit down with yourself and and think about what's really important to you. And if it is if it's writing and writing for advertising, then carry on doing that. Like in hundred percent carry on doing that. If it's if it's writing and and creating works of art, then start, you know, start writing poetry and novels on the side, if it or films or whatever it is. If it's if it's connecting with people around words and, and sort of building narratives, then, then then maybe think about strategy a bit or or go and sit with the people who are designing digital products and think about the, the role that words play in that. Um, and then there's the group who are like, okay, you're sitting in an industry that's that's struggling. Can you apply your creativity to thinking of new business models, new ways of doing things, new applications of creativity, how's tech going to fit in with what you do and go and lead, go and find the problems to the industry. Because I, I, I'm a big believer that, you know, a creative person can be as good at starting, running, changing, transforming uh, a company as, as anyone else in the building. Like strategists can do it, creatives can do it, and then there are business people. But, it, you know, transformational change can come from anywhere. So I think my advice would be, don't don't rest on your copywriting laurels unless that's absolutely what you want to do and you're going to be happy doing it for the rest of your life. That's great. Um, thank you so much. That was a great conversation. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, I'm just going to press 